Welcome to the Criminal Defense Show, where we dive into the exciting world of criminal defense attorneys and learn from their unique insights and experiences. Today, joining me, we have Mr. Shane Phelps. He is a criminal defense attorney and founder of the law office of Shane Phelps. He is a leading trial lawyer. He's tried over 200 jury trials for everything from DWI to capital murder. He is a forensic lawyer scientist, which by the way, I think there's fewer than a hundred of those in the entire country. And he is a board certified criminal law specialist and former U.S. Marine. Welcome to the show, yes. Shane. Thank you very much for having We're me. We're so glad to have you. You have so much valuable insights. You are the man when it comes to your accolades and how much experience you have. And I'm so excited to get to know you better and have you talk about your background a little bit first and foremost. So tell us a little bit about how you got started as a lawyer. Well, I got started as a prosecutor. I had wanted to be a, and I'm not quite sure why, but I had wanted to be a, a lawyer. And particularly if you asked me when I was 12 years old, what I wanted to do, I would have told you, I wanted to be a crusading young district attorney. I think that came from TV shows and comic books and things like that. My grandfather was a lawyer and apparently a fairly well-regarded trial lawyer. I never met him. He died before I was born, about six months actually. But I certainly heard stories my whole life. So it was always kind of assumed that, at least for me, that I was headed for law school. My parents did not have money. Father was a career Marine. Mom was a bookkeeper. And I didn't have much parenting, active parenting as I was growing up, kind of a feral kid. And so, you know, kind of through a series of circumstances, fortunate circumstances, I ended up where I'm at. My uh, parents divorced when I was 18, 19, pretty ugly divorce. So I was pretty much on my own, didn't have any way to get to college. So I joined the Marine Corps and I spent three years in the Marine Corps. And I did that for the GI Bill, turned out to be one of the best things I ever did. Came out after three years as a sergeant. I kind of set a record for making Sergeant E5 about less than two years, which is pretty unheard of in the Marines. I was a journalist in the Marines, so I learned to write well. And I, that's where I first started my passion for photography. But when I got out of the Marines, I, uh, I came to Texas. My mom had moved here and I had not put just a tremendous amount of thought into it, but I knew I wanted to go to college. So I applied for one college. I was pretty clueless. Turns out it's kind of a hard college to get into. It's uh, Rice University in Houston, but I, I didn't put any of the thought into it. I think being a veteran helped, personal interview helped. Uh, same thing with law school. I, I was clueless applied to one law school because it was the only one that didn't charge me to apply. And that was uh, University of Texas School of Law in Houston. I wanted to be a prosecutor and turned down a job actually in Santa Monica, right at the corner of Ocean Avenue in Santa Monica Boulevard for a large law firm out there. And I turned down, turned down that job to take a position as an assistant DA in Houston and, and really hit the ground running. I often tell young interns and young lawyers you know, if you want to learn how to try cases, join a big prosecutor's office. I was in court every day for three years. I tried probably before I left, I don't know, 60, 70 trials. From there, I went to the attorney general's office where I was the chief special prosecutor for the attorney general's office. It's a pretty cool job. I traveled all over the state of Texas, prosecuting high profile cases, public corruption, death penalty cases, and things like that. I was a young bachelor with a little red Miata traveling all over the state of Texas. It was a, it was a good life. I became um, Deputy Attorney General for Criminal Justice for Texas in uh, 2000, uh, 1999, actually, and did that for a couple of years. And then my wife and I, we had gotten married 
came to Brazos County, which is Bryan College Station, which is where the George Bush Presidential Library is and uh, Texas A&M University, uh, which turns out to be a real boon for, for us. I was the first assistant DA here for 10 years and went into private practice 10 years ago. I just kind of got mad at my boss and walked out the door. A little scary, but it worked out very well. So what was it that attracted you specifically to criminal defense? You know, I, I, I've always wanted to be involved in criminal law and did that as a prosecutor for a number of years and tried pretty much everything a, a prosecutor could try. I, I think a lot of it honestly had to do with, with kind of my upbringing. I, I was raised watching Adam 12. I don't know if you know, probably went off the air before you were born. <laughs> um, it was a long running show about two police officers. It was done by the guy who did Dragnet, Jack Webb. I love that I've show. I've heard of Dragnet, that I've heard of. And, and I grew up watching that show. I just was always interested. To me, criminal defense is the most interesting discipline of law. I mean, every case is different. Every case is challenging. And so the transition, I get this question a lot where people will say, what was the transition like from being a prosecutor to being a defense lawyer? And what I tell folks is I was never that prosecutor who didn't think that I could ever go out and be a defense attorney. And there are a lot of them out there. I would hear from other prosecutors that, you know, defense attorneys were, I heard the word sleazy a lot and, and shifty and dishonest and all that nonsense. I had a very strong feeling as a prosecutor that the power that I wielded was something that if I didn't wield it responsibly, I could hurt a lot of people. And so I was a very careful prosecutor. Uh, I was an aggressive prosecutor and I was very effective, but I was really careful. And I used to tell young prosecutors I mentored, you know, you want the best defense attorney you can have on the other side because you're gonna make mistakes, you're a human being. And when you make mistakes, people suffer for that. And a good defense attorney on the other side is gonna find those issues that you may be ignoring or just not seeing and make sure they get in front of a judge or a jury so that ultimately the process is supposed to be fair. So without, I had a very strong opinion back then that defense attorneys were just as important as anybody else, frankly, if not more so than anybody else in the system and used to mentor young prosecutors like that. I didn't get, I'm not sure how much it saturated into their consciousness, but it got to the point as a prosecutor where when I was preparing for a case, a complicated case, toward the last few years, I was trying death penalty cases and complicated you know, public corruption, things like that, difficult cases. And I found that I was more effective when I kind of tried to put myself in the place of a defense lawyer. What would I do if I were a defense attorney to defend this case? Where do I see? And then, so the weaknesses of the case would kind of introduce themselves to me and I would be prepared for those. And so I, that's one of the reasons I think I had a kind of a ferocious reputation in the courtroom is because defense attorneys would think of stuff and I'd already thought of it. That was what became most intellectually stimulating to me. So while I, I hadn't planned on leaving the DA's office under the way, the way that I did, which is, as I said, getting mad at my boss and crosswise and just leaving. And there was a lot of fear and anxiety that came along with that. I took to it pretty quickly and pretty proudly. I really feel like what I'm doing in criminal defense is probably one of the most noble things you can do with a law license. I absolutely agree. And it's unfortunate some criminal defense attorneys get a bad rap, but there's attorneys like you who exist and really do level up the entire profession. Well, that's kind of you. I, I, you know, just like any profession, prosecutors, same way. There's some very fine prosecutors out there, thoughtful, you know, understanding the power that they wield and how to do it responsibly and, and not taking unnecessary chances. Uh, unfortunately, and I want to hate to say this, but since I've gone out for the past 10 years as a criminal defense lawyer, they're not as numerous as I thought they were. 
which is why over the course of the last 10 years, my passion for being a criminal defense lawyer has just increased exponentially year after year, because I've just, as I see the system work and people sometimes not putting the effort into it that they should be, or that I think they should be, um, you know, frankly, it kind of makes me angry, but it also kind of inflames me. So I've got a, a reputation everywhere I go of being a little bit strident and passionate, but I've always thought that that was the reason that, that I have been fortunate to be successful as a trial lawyer is that I really believe in what I'm doing. And that shows for sure. Well, I appreciate that. Well, can you describe for me the scope and size of your law practice? Well, uh, I, I keep my law practice small. It really is centered around me. You know, my wife likes to, to say my wife is a lawyer, Jean, who also is a CPA. So she has kind of taken on the role of the CFO of the firm, which is helpful because it keeps me out of tax jail. But usually we have three to four lawyers. I, I like to keep it small because I just, I just like that environment. I don't, I don't have any desire to be a, you know, one of these lawyers who's got 15 or 20 people working for me. I, I think I could probably do that, but that's just not the kind of practice I want. I really believe strongly in mentoring young lawyers. So we have interns from Texas A&M who are headed for law school. We always have at least two or three of those working in the office. And I take that mentoring very seriously, but also with young lawyers. And the lawyers that I've got, I spend a lot of time with them, helping them. As I tell people who hire my office, you know, ultimately, if one of my other lawyers is kind of their lead lawyer, I'm still responsible for the quality of law, uh, legal work that comes out of the firm. You know, I don't hire people unless they're exceptional. And we've got a good reputation as being, I think, one of the better law firms, criminal defense firms in, in central Texas, if not Texas. We do almost, well, I would say exclusively criminal defense. Every once in a while as a favor, I'll take a civil case or I'll take a, a family law case, but I really don't like to do that. I really enjoy working with uh, people and trying to help them get through what are almost always the worst you know, days of their lives. I work with a lot of parents. We have developed kind of a sub practice of college students in trouble. We've got 80,000 college students in this community of 200,000 people. So unfortunately, a lot of them are out there making mistakes every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. And so I get a great deal of business from, from the university, um, even to the point where I've actually written a little book on how not to get arrested while you're going to college here. It's up on my website. So, I mean, I want people to lawyers, judges, prosecutors to know that if, you know, if they're dealing with my law firm and they've got, uh, then they're dealing with a professional ethical uh, set of lawyers. But, you know, if you're the prosecutor, then you've got a hell of a fight on your hands. And I think that that reputation helps my clients a great deal. It absolutely does. There's no, no arguing that for sure. Well, as far as the day-to-day -day management of your practice, I'm curious, what things in the firm are you responsible for as the founder? Well, uh, pretty much everything. But where I think I kind of unexpectedly excelled when I went out into private practice and to kind of put that in perspective, I mean, I literally walked out the door. A friend of mine had a, a building downtown, let me land there at about 150 square feet. I started doing things to boost the, the visibility of my practice and my visibility. Now, I, I had a pretty good reputation in the community as a prosecutor before I left, and that helped. There was no question about that, name ID and that sort of thing. But the part of, of having a law practice, building the law practice, of the business side of the law practice, and most importantly, the marketing aspect of the law practice, while it can be kind of uncomfortable at times because I'm not really comfortable saying what a great lawyer I am. I don't feel good about that, but 
you know, that's part of the marketing. And so, so really I probably, other than, you know, making sure that the legal work that comes out of my firm is, is the best that people are going to see uh, lawyers and prosecutors and that sort of thing. I really have taken pretty much hundred percent control of the marketing and, and development business development of the firm. But also I, I tell my, my lawyers and the people who work for me, I like to be a cutting edge law firm. I like to be out there making law as much as we possibly can. And we've been very successful in that. I've argued several cases for the court of criminal appeals where we've actually changed the law in Texas. And to me, that's, that, that helps of course, burnish the reputation of the law firm, but it's also very satisfying to be able to actually affect criminal defense work and criminal law across the state of Texas. So, I mean, we're a small office, you know, fortunately one of the first things that we did, and that was, I can attribute this to, to Jean, my wife, when we ran out of space and we quickly ran out of 150 square feet, Jean kind of calculated, this is how much we need for growth and all that. It would be foolish to pay somebody rent. So we bought a building. We bought a hundred year old building and sunk a bunch of money into it. We went to a bank and they took a chance on me. And I think that paid off pretty well for them in the end. Um, but we, we renovated this building. And like I said, it's probably about 120 years old now but it's a beautiful building and it's, it's, it's an eye catcher. People drive by, I hear comments about it all the time, you know, so appearance is important. People love coming in and it makes a big difference when people come in and they understand, okay, this is a successful practice. So that was, that was a big deal being able to, uh, to do that. Your building is beautiful. I've seen a picture of it on your website. It's absolutely gorgeous. And it's interesting that that you bought it. It's smart that you bought it. I hear all the time from other clients of ours that they wish that they had done that. They bought it. I don't understand why why lawyers who are successful do not buy their own building. I mean, this is part of my retirement plan, you know, Uh, and the good news here is, I mean, this building, I own it outright. We don't owe anybody any money on this building. And we've added to it about four or five years ago. So it's about 3,500 square feet with 15 parking spaces. And we're about two blocks from the courthouse and the building belongs to me. I do not understand why lawyers do not look into that. And I really do think there are a couple of models of practice and a lot depends on, you know, how much effort you're willing to put into it and how much risk you're willing to take. The one thing I have learned over the last 10 years is there are several decisions you make like buying buildings, like adding associates, like hiring expensive marketing firms for your website that are scary, but they pay off. And if you don't take those chances, your your firm's never going to move to the next level. And I have found that to be the case many times over, over the, over the course of the last 10 years and, you know, buying this building and having my own building uh, has been one of those that's, that's been a really great decision. You know, the other thing you asked about, you know, what do I do in the firm? I am very, very fortunate to have an excellent staff. And that was one of those things that I really wanted from the beginning were people that I could depend on and trust. I think I'm a really good boss. I, I think they would tell you that. Uh, I really do take care of my employees. I bonus generously. I include them in all of the victories of this law firm. We are very close knit. One nice side benefit of that is every year when we have our Christmas party, they come up with the coolest Christmas gifts. Uh, I have my own bobblehead. Nice. <laughs> so, but but having having really good people working for you, I, I don't think our firm would be successful without without Samantha, without Tracy, making sure that things get done. And it's, you know, it's not uncommon at all for me to walk into Samantha's office and say, Hey, I need you to do this. And it's already been done. We are a very smooth working, very friendly, kind of a happy place to work. It sounds like a great place to work. I love that. Love it. I like to work in a nice place. And I remember what it was like to come to work when you didn't want to. 
And that's hopefully not the case here. Doesn't sound like it is. I don't think you have anything to worry about there. Kind of proud of that. So good. You should be. You mentioned that one of the things you're responsible for is the marketing aspect of the law firm. What marketing practices are you currently following to generate business? Well, uh, several things. Honestly, one of the first things I did when I got out was I discovered that law, that uh, website, avo.com or avo or whatever they call it. And I got on and I did everything I could to get my get that rating as high as I could. And I was a 10.0 pretty quickly. And I was the only one in town. And that made a difference. And I could put it on my website. My, and I could put it on my Facebook page. And I, you know, I bought the plaque. It's here somewhere, you know, it says I'm a superb lawyer. Again, that's just part of the marketing thing. Uh, the smartest marketing decision I ever made was to hire you guys. And it was scary because it's not inexpensive, but I cannot underestimate or understate the uh, quality of service and attention that I've gotten since I signed with Scorpion. I made that decision several years ago. I told Carrie Ann, who kind of runs my program, I hired Scorpion and within six months I had to hire additional lawyers to handle the caseload. So that probably was the most significant decision and in working with Scorpion on what that website looks like, but also, you know, what, you know, the advertising, the pay per click stuff. And, you know, I kind of let you guys handle that, but, but I, I do still stay involved. The other thing is I've been very involved in the community and it's, and it's not just a marketing ploy, but I think lawyers would be naive to think that getting out into the community and doing, you know, philanthropic stuff is, I mean, that is important. I would do it regardless, but it has its benefits. It's hard for me to say no when people call me and say, would you sponsor this fundraiser for this nonprofit? I do that all the time, but it does have its benefits. Here, I'll show you. I'm on the board of directors of Voices for Children, which is a CASA program here, and I sponsor their annual superhero fun run. So it's not inexpensive. I think I paid them $5,000, but everybody who showed up, all the people are running around this fun run. were wearing this. I don't know if you can see that, right? <laughs> nice. So it's got, I mean, that's, that's pretty good marketing. I think so. <laughs> totally unintended. I didn't ask for it, but it just happened. So I get involved with uh, community activities like that. I've been on the board of directors of the chamber of commerce, which is an amazing way to make uh, contacts in the community. One of the first things that we did was we joined the Chamber of Commerce. Here, we have a very active chamber, and we did a, a groundbreaking ribbon-cutting kind of thing when we opened my law firm. They brought 50 people into my law firm to wander around. We fed them and gave them wine, and they did this wonderful speech about, you know, what a great lawyer I was. It was really cool, and it was nice to just be able to show off the office. But everybody who came walked away thinking, well, that's Shane Phelps is a lawyer, at least on my radar. And so I get a lot of phone calls from local people. I get a lot of referrals. People just know me in, in the community. I have been made myself available to uh, the media, which is kind of fun. I enjoy that. I'm not what I would call a media hog, but if you are in your local community, we're a community of about 200,000. We've got a pretty good TV station here, uh, KBTX, and another one called KAGS, KAGS. And if you're willing to sit down and talk with them, they're going to keep calling you. And so I've become the KBTX legal analyst. That's how I'm identified every time I appear. They call me, they were in my office day before yesterday. They call me on any criminal law issue and frankly, any legal issue. And so I've been on TV probably, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 times over the last three or four years. Wow. So I have people recognizing me in restaurants and um, in parking lots and stuff like that all the time, which is kind of fun. But I'm on TV as KBTX's legal expert. 
and people remember that stuff. And the more repetition there is, the better. But I do, I do spend a lot of time getting involved in the community. And a big part of that is I just love this community. I love where I live. Uh, we made a conscious choice to come here. I love the people who live here. It's where my daughter was born, where she was raised, where she went to school. And so getting out in the community and helping the community is a, is, is a big part of what we do here. And while it is not the point, it certainly does pay off in terms of marketing. One of the proudest things that I've ever been able to do that I never would have been able to do as a prosecutor is I remember how hard it was to go through law school and college, paying my way as a person that was just pretty much on my own, just fresh out of the military. A&M has a, a strong veterans resource program, and it's gotten stronger in the last 10 years. Gene and I and the law firm endowed the very first veterans scholarship at Texas A&M that is a scholarship in perpetuity every semester, some young combat veteran trying to work through college gets a check from us. I'm really proud of that program. It's called the Gene 87 because she went to A&M and Shane Phelps Aggie Veterans Scholarship. And every year on Veterans Day, we donate more money to it from the firm. So it's gotten to be a fairly sizable scholarship. So that's connected us with the, with the A&M community in a significant way. And again, not the reason to do it. I did it because I wanted to help people who were in my position uh, when I went through college and law school, but it does have that benefit. Just getting out in the community and doing things in the community is uh, I think a huge part of, of what a law firm should be doing. If you wanna be a law firm that is recognized as a leader in the community. Absolutely. That's really interesting. The Chamber of Commerce is one of the things you mentioned, which I feel like is probably pretty underutilized by a lot of individuals. I think it is. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think that's really worth taking away from this conversation. If you're listening, I also think it's really interesting about the media relationship. How did you get that relationship established with your local media stations? Well, you know what, when I was a prosecutor here, I tried some very high profile cases. So the media was always involved. Of course, you know, during trials and things like that, you can't talk to them, but I was never afraid to make myself available if they wanted to have a comment after the case was over or something like that. And it just kind of snowballed. And when I got out into private practice, I, you know, it may well have been that they just called around looking for a lawyer to put on their show about this particular uh, or their evening newscast about this particular case or this issue. And I picked up the phone at the right time. The willingness to do that and the willingness to kind of make sure that you were available for that, as I say, has just snowballed. And so I get called 10, 15 times a year, maybe more. And so I ended up on TV every time I walk into the courthouse. Saw you on TV last night, Shane. You know, that's, that helps a lot, but that's, that's it. Just making yourself available. I don't know that there's a way to, um, you know, to call them up and say, Hey, can I be your legal analyst? I think it just kind of happens, but but being available to do that. And I think it's easier in a mid-sized community like mine. But if you look around there, you know, there are a lot of lawyers who are on some of these national shows, you know, Fox and CNN and all that. But these local TV stations, they need that perspective and they want that perspective and they want that video to be able to put on their show, you know? So uh, they always come in and do the B-roll stuff. And, and so, you know, people see my law office and they see me and I'm talking, I'm, you know, represented as an expert and it just helps a lot. For sure. If, if there's an opportunity to do it, it needs to be done. Absolutely. Something I've also heard people do with uh, newspapers, you know, they publish who the journalists are. 
So you could easily reach out to them. I think any major newspaper has the email addresses on their website. Well, they do. They certainly do. So people could reach out to them and just say, hey, I'm here. This is what I bring to the table. I'd be- well, they can do the same thing at TV stations as well, because they all publish their, find out who the news director is and say, hey, if you ever need a legal perspective, I'm happy to help. Here are my qualifications. One of the things I was able to do with the TV station is that I told them, well, if you, if you want me to be your legal expert, you want to represent me as the KBTX legal analyst, then, you know, obviously I'm not going to charge for that or anything, but I do want permission to take those clips off your website and put them on my website. So on my Scorpion website, we've got an in the news or something, some tab like that, where you can go and people can watch that. I also take that, I've got a Facebook page. I've got, I don't know, close to 1100 people who, who subscribe to my Facebook page. So I post those clips on that as well. So it's like free media. I mean, if I were to go down to a local marketing place and said, hey, can we do a video? It's going to cost me $10,000. Right. I do this and I'm willing to you know, go down to the studio and answer their questions. And then I post that on my Facebook page, put it on my web page. That's a lot of advertising for free. So it's, it's been one of the, the real strengths of my practice over the last several years. Very valuable, no doubt. Well, this so, ends in with your community involvement piece. Tell me about Atticus Finch Day. Oh, <laughs> I guess it's been a number of years ago. I actually started it when I was a prosecutor. We had a very dysfunctional courthouse. Uh, people were at each other's throats. There were scandals. There were people going to jail. I mean, it was a horrible place to work. And there was no cohesiveness in our legal community here. I mean, we had a bar association, but frankly, it was a non-entity. And, and there just wasn't any, any collective sense of, you know, we're all kind of working toward the same end here and we can do it collegially. I tried a case as a prosecutor. It was actually a lawyer I was prosecuting. And uh, it was a difficult trial. And every once in a while, I get a little um, tunnel visioned in trial and did so in this case. I mean, that case was over day one. She was going to be convicted and she was and deserved to be. She insisted on representing herself, but the judge appointed a standby counsel, a gentleman named Phil Banks, who's a lawyer here in town. And there was a point in that trial where I decided I wanted to get into a fact that this lawyer had got kicked out of law school for plagiarizing or something as a punishment. I didn't need it, but I was just, you know, I was in the fight, you know. I had the, the warrior madness, I think they call it. And it was going to delay the trial and it didn't need to be delayed. And the lawyer, Phil, was on the other side. We found ourselves right in front of the jury box. I mean, we were six feet away from where these, all these 12 jurors were and the judge and it was a packed courtroom. And he, we were nose to nose. And I looked down and I saw he had his fist clenched and he's red faced. <laughs> we almost came to blows in the courtroom, wow. you, know, you get into that, you know, that battle passion. And, you know, he said an uncharitable thing. I responded uncharitably. The judge said, let's take a break. And, you know, Phil came immediately office and, and I like Phil. We hugged, we, we'd become very close friends. We showed up for final arguments, both of us just coincidentally dressed in seersucker suits <laughs> and bow ties, kind of the quintessential Southern lawyer kind of outfit. And it occurred to me, after a while that, you know, I hadn't read the book that To Kill a Mockingbird for a very long time. So I reread the book and realized that most lawyers kind of point to Atticus Finch as a role model, like, you know, look at what we can do. And, but we fall short all the time. Like Phil and I fell short in the courtroom. And so I thought, well, what if we were to get together once a year Everybody dresses up in seersucker suits. I even arranged a discount at the local Joseph A. Banks. 
And my wife makes these insane designer cookies, sugar cookies. And we'd get together, we'd have a guest, one of our local lawyers or somebody come in and they would read excerpts from To Kill a Mockingbird and talk about why they were inspired by that. And the goal was that we would come together once a year with an idea to commit ourselves or recommit ourselves to the ideals of, that we valued in Atticus Finch, that we would acknowledge that there was a great deal of good if we are so motivated that we can do with our law degrees like Atticus Finch did. And that we don't have to tear each other apart in the process of zealously representing our clients. And so we started this thing. We started, there were probably 10 or 15 of us maybe in, in just on the first floor of the courthouse and it snowballed. And, you know, the next year it was a bunch more lawyers. The next year it was a bunch more to the point where we've actually outgrown the facility that we use. The last time we did it, we had more than 150 people standing room only. We've had some pretty insane guests over the years that, that I've invited. And, you know, and Frank, I, I pay for this and I, you know, it's cost possibly about $10,000 a year, but it's worth every penny. You know, I'm kind of the MC along with, with Phil. We remind people while we're there and we hear from some of the best lawyers in the country. Rusty Harden has been a guest speaker. We had the former chief justice of the Supreme Court of Texas, Wallace Jefferson, who descended from slaves and was able to talk about, you know, now he's the first African-American on the Supreme Court, and now he's chief justice. Uh, just an amazing, we had Michael Morton. I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Morton, but he's a towering figure in Texas criminal jurisprudence. He spent 25 years in prison for murdering his wife, and he was innocent and went to the legislature and changed the law in Texas, one of the most decent human beings ever. And he spoke, he was our 10th anniversary speaker, and he brought the crowd to tears and a standing ovation. And, and people love it. They get together, the fellowship. We've made little uh, challenge coins for Atticus Finch Day. We put together, this is the uh, 10th anniversary. I don't know if you can see it, but mm -hmm. for when Michael Morton was our guest, and I always bring a, I always bring this with me, kind of our inspiration. That's Gregory Peck when he was starring in To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a wonderful movie. So it has become a big deal. It's, it's been covered in um, uh, the Texas Bar Journal. We run the Texas Bar Journal. That's Phil and me. Nice. It's become a big deal and hopefully will be replicated you know, around the country, uh, around the state. I, I just think it's so important for lawyers to get together and understand that, that our law degrees are come with a great deal of responsibility and that we need to be friendlier than we are. So it has been worth the effort because it takes quite a bit of an effort. I've kind of taken it on myself and kind of made sure that it keeps going, but it's taken on a life of its own. So I'm pretty proud of that. It's so amazing. And for you, it's not just about showing up for your community, but actually building a community of lawyers. Yes. And everyone has, I think, the power to do that. They just don't really realize it. So I think that's a really powerful story. You know, I think a lot of lawyers don't understand or maybe don't appreciate or haven't thought you can do whatever you want. And it can be incremental and then snowball from there. But it's just a matter of making the decision to, to be a part of your community and make a difference in your community and in your state, either through your legal advocacy, appellate advocacy, or for getting out in your community and, and making it a better place. That has been very rewarding to me over the years. About two years ago, we didn't have a criminal defense lawyers association here. And I started, in fact, I bought every criminal defense lawyer in town lunch to lure them to an, you know, an inaugural meeting. And we've now formed the Brazos County Criminal Defense Lawyers Association. I was proud to be voted their first president. 
I also tell young lawyers, get out there into the statewide community, go to seminars, meet people. I am on the board of directors of the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association. That's something a lot of people just don't take the time to do. All you have to do is apply. And it took me a couple of years to get on. I got in on the second year uh, because it's very difficult to ever get, you know, the first time you apply. But it has been, I mean, I've got lawyers all over the state of Texas who say, my guy in College Station in, in that area is Shane Phelps. And I guarantee you, there are people who are going to be asked, hey, I have a friend who's got a son who just got arrested down in College Station. Who do you know? I get more cases that way. So that networking is really valuable. And it's also very rewarding. I mean, I enjoy the networking and, and the seminars and, and I enjoy serving. I, there's a lot of stuff that we can do on a statewide level that affects everybody and makes lives better for you know, people who are accused of offenses, but also for you know, criminal defense lawyers. This is a stressful job. That is probably the one of the most important things that, that you can probably talk about. I had no idea. I spent the first year in my criminal defense practice apologizing to all the other criminal defense lawyers about, I, I had no idea you guys worked this hard. No, not everybody works as hard as I think I do, but I, I work very hard, like six days a week, but I have a pretty nice practice to show for it. But I get very frustrated when I'm trying to do the right thing. And I know in my heart that the right thing is to do a, a certain thing for a client and I've got a prosecutor who just says, no, I don't think so. I, I, I lose sleep over that. And defense lawyers particularly need to be on guard about that. There's a lot of compassion fatigue in criminal defense work if you are doing it right. And if you're not protecting against that, taking care of yourself and you know, exercising regularly and eating healthy and spending time with your family, it can get pretty depressing and pretty difficult pretty quick. We Sadly, in our community, we've had, I think, three or four suicides of lawyers in the last three or four years. And one of the things, one of the reasons I do Atticus Finch Day, the Criminal Defense Lawyers Association, is to have everybody come together and so that everybody can keep an eye on each other. The collegiality of the criminal defense bar is something I've been most impressed with. It is, it far exceeds what I experienced in the, in the prosecutor bar. People looking out for each other, and people have a tendency to kind of let their personalities kind of go when they become defense lawyers. You can't do that as a prosecutor. And I've seen some people go pretty far in the wrong direction. But I, I just love who I am now because I've been a defense lawyer for 10 years. That stress management piece is really interesting to me because, you know, we think about how to take care of ourselves, how to manage stress. We always think about eating healthy and exercising and getting sleep and spending time with your family. But community is a really important pillar of health, like mental health, emotional health, even physical health. Human beings were meant to have community and to be together. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why you feel the way you feel is because you have that that element that I think a lot of attorneys are probably missing. Well, and that's unfortunate. I think you're exactly right. And, you know, if, if you have a good attitude about your community and your involvement in your community and a sense that you're actually making a difference, that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me mentally healthy. I mean, there are times when, when I find myself kind of depressed, you know, if I, I haven't gotten what I want, what I really want for parents for their child. And it just, and, and I know it was the right thing to do. And I've just got to keep fighting. That can be very, very stressful. And, but I live for the moments and I'm fortunate to be able to have quite a few of those where I get to call. Matter of fact, just before we started this podcast, I called a, a mom and told her we work with her daughter who was a, a drug addict and really was in the wrong way. And I really spent a lot of time with her and worked hard on her case. 
And I don't think anybody thought she would be successful. She just finished drug court uh, successfully. She's turned her life around completely. She's going to be a nurse. And I was able to call her mom just a minute ago and say, I got her off probation. So she's got her life back and headed in the right direction. And I live for those moments that I get to call parents and say, hey, I got your kid out from under a felony. Because when parents call me, they think their kids' lives are over. It is, it is, we lose sight of the fact that because we deal with this every day, I know that a possession of marijuana charge in Texas is, is not the end of the world. Parents don't know that and they freak out. I talk to panicked parents and sobbing parents, sadly, in my conference room and on the phone all the time. And those moments when I get to call them up and say, it's gonna be okay. We worked your case out, we got it dismissed. We got it reduced to a misdemeanor. Those are the moments that keep me going. And, and lawyers ought to seek out those moments and take care of themselves mentally. Involvement in the community and, and knowing that you're making a difference keeps you going. And how important is it to really celebrate and feel those victories? Because there's going to be dark moments, but the light ones, when they do happen, you have to really absorb them because that's what's going to power you through the next situation you have to face, right? You really do. And, and sometimes that's a little awkward. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't, I get called arrogant a lot. I don't, I hate that, but I really am pretty, probably pretty insecure. Um, and so I feel, always feel a little uncomfortable trying to take credit for stuff like that. But you have to, you have to appreciate that if you do your job right, then you as an individual can actually make a difference in somebody's life. And, and I have come to terms with that. I mean, I, I know that I am good enough at what I do that I can make a difference and that keeps me going. And you're exactly right. You have to celebrate those moments and you have to, absorb them and embrace them and let them carry you through because there are going to be some difficult times and you have to reflect back on that. I'm not one of those lawyers who can just walk away and say, oh, I'm done. I get personally invested in my clients and that has a toll, that takes a toll, but it also is deeply and richly rewarding. Absolutely. Well, I want to pivot for a second and ask you about something else I think that sets you apart from other attorneys, which is the fact that you're a lawyer scientist. For people who don't know what that is, can you explain how that helps your law practice and how you got to become a lawyer scientist? Well, you know, when I was a prosecutor, I, I had kind of a reputation of being pretty pretty effective when I cross-examined experts. I would spend a lot of time researching a particular subject or looking at the studies and things like that. So I, I could at least intelligently understand and process and challenge if necessary, no complicated technical testimony, but it is difficult. In most cases, particularly DWI cases, people do not understand how scientifically, technically difficult they could be if you're doing it right. You know, there are a lot of people, for instance, in DWI cases that just say, well, it's a blood case. I remember the first uh, blood case, which was a 0.23 blood test that I tried with a friend of mine here, Craig Greening. And it, we got such a shocked reaction when we set it for trial. Uh, we got phone calls. Why are you setting this for trial? The blood is 0.23. We won that case. We got the blood thrown out in the middle of trial. And it's because we did the research and we knew how blood is tested and, and that sort of thing. So I became interested in that. There is a program called, um, it's this forensic lawyer scientist program that is run out of Axion Laboratories in Chicago. There's a gentleman named Justin McShane, who is probably one of the best DWI lawyers in the country, if not the world. And a, a colleague of his named Josh Lee out of Oklahoma, also brilliant. These guys are amazing. And, and Justin, for instance, comes from a, a parents who are both scientists. So he's very interested in that. They went to the American Chemical Society and said, because they were there's a chemistry and law division that they were part of. 
and said, well, what if we were to set up this program where at the end of it, somebody could be designated as a forensic lawyer scientist? And they said, no, we don't do that. Well, they put the program together and brought it back to the American Chemical Society. And they said, wow, yeah, we'll do this. So it is a program that is both expensive and time intensive and very difficult. It's uh, four weeks, four separate courses. The first one is basic forensic gas chromatography, which is the process they use to test blood for alcohol content and other things. It's actually really good science. And, and it's used in laboratories, industrial laboratories all over the world, but it's used by forensic crime laboratories to test blood for alcohol. And then you do a, what they call solid drug testing, which is, you know, the lab gets a chunk of white substance. They got to figure out what it is. And so they use uh, liquid chromatography, uh, a lot of presumptive testing. They use mass spectrometry to, which is also really good science to say, we can tell you to a scientific certainty that this substance contains this controlled substance. And then you do one where it's called, it's called the UID, driving under the influence of drugs, which has become insanely popular among prosecutors and law enforcement across the country, particularly because of THC. Uh, and it is actually testing blood for the presence of controlled substances. And you go through that course. Each of these courses are a week long. Then you go back and take the forensic gas chromatography course again. And then they hit you with a hundred question, very difficult test. And if you pass it, then you become a forensic lawyer scientist designated by the American Chemical Society. And you're right. I think there are only about a hundred of us in the country right now. I was very immensely proud, immensely proud to get through that program and do it successfully and get my, my they call it the golden column. I'm going to go off here a second and show you because uh, I am really kind of proud of it. They designed this. This is the golden column. Oh, wow. It's beautiful. It's, it's a this is a, the column that's inside the uh, gas chromatograph, which is where all the substances, the vapor goes through it. And it's a tiny little hundred meter tube. That was actually, they, they went out and designed that themselves and sent it to the people who make the, I think the Grammys or something. And that's where they got that done. I learned from some of the best forensic scientists in the, in the country. It's really an exceptional program. It's not inexpensive, but that's another one of those risks I took. It's a week out of my schedule, four times. It's you know airline tickets out to Chicago, although I love Chicago. The tuition is not cheap. It's like $3,000 or $3,500. So the whole process is about $20,000. But being able to say that I'm a forensic lawyer scientist helps me retain DWI cases and drug cases and things like that. And it sets me apart from almost all the other lawyers in the area. And it helps me try these cases. I mean, that's uh, when I do a DWI case and I do quite a few of them, we send off for all the lab files for both my client and then all of the other cases are, that they were try, uh, analyzed with. So people think that they analyze blood, they really kind of analyze the, the vapor above a drop of blood and they put it in an auto sampler with 50 other people and they push a button and the chemist goes on. And a lot of people don't understand that. And when you educate juries about the process, you can tell them it's really good science if it's done properly. But these forensic laboratories, they're handling thousands and thousands and thousands of these things a month to make mistakes. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you're going to miss those mistakes. And those mistakes can mean the difference between a not guilty and a guilty in, in a blood case, even a 0.15 or 0.20 or that 0.23 blood test that we tried. So it's one of those risks I took. But I did it because I wanted to advance my knowledge and be, you know, frankly, 
kind of set myself apart from the herd. <laughs> I know that sounds a little arrogant, but you know, one of the things that I have strongly told people who are talking about going into criminal defense work, look for those opportunities to set yourself apart. And that's things like you know, community involvement, things like this um, golden column, the forensic lawyer scientist program, so that you can basically, you know, represent yourself as, and represent yourself truthfully as being a leader in the criminal defense community. And I, I think I've put myself in that position, at least I hope I have. One thing we haven't talked about, by the way, is board certification. I, I think it's insane for criminal defense lawyers not to be board certified in criminal law. I've been board certified since 1992 as a criminal law specialist. And that's a pretty neat thing to be able to put on my card and on my website and tell people. And that's an easy thing. It's, it's not an easy test. It takes a lot of studying. It's a hard test and a lot of recommendations from, from other folks. But I, I just, you know, if you're out there practicing criminal defense work, as soon as you can be eligible for it, you need to, you need to apply so that you can say you're, because there's only about 10% of criminal defense lawyers in Texas uh, who are board certified. So that puts you in the top 10% right there. I yeah. don't know why people don't do it. Other than it's a little intimidating. It's difficult to, to do. But if you set your mind to it, you'll, you'll be able to do it. Now, there are a lot of programs out there like that that you can do that will, that will help you. National College of uh, DUI Defense and all that, they have certifications and things like that too. So got to look for those opportunities. Absolutely. Which do you think was more difficult, the criminal law specialist certification or the lawyer scientist designation? You know, that's really hard to say. The, the board certification, you know, you have to have a certain number of years as a lawyer. You have to have a certain number of trials under your belt. You've got to have recommendations from lawyers and judges. And then they tell you whether they're going to let you take the test. The test is about six hours. So it's like taking the bar exam, at least to have it, a day of the bar exam all over again. And it's not an easy test. It's both state law and federal law. Matter of fact, I came out of the test thinking I'd failed. I didn't, thankfully. But it's criminal defense law. It's much broader. The forensic lawyer program is science. It's a lot of science. Physics, chemistry, toxicology, pharmacology. You know, when I took that program, chromatography is, is, uh, has been a significant discipline since the 50s. The guy that I learned from, Harold McNair, who was 82 or 83 when I learned from him, had the first PhD in the country in chromatography. And he was the protege of the guy who won the Nobel Prize for that program. I mean, that, that program is all about science. But it's also, there's a huge component of it that is ap applying that science to, to trial advocacy. You know, how to ask the right questions, how to set people up, how to plan a cross-examination. So there's some really good legal advocacy in it too. Um, so it's hard to say which one is more important. I would say it's important to be both. But you'll see far more people who are board certified than you do people who are forensic lawyer scientists. True. Absolutely true. I think a lot of people probably just don't know a lot about it and aren't quite sure what the value would be, but you've explained that very, very well. I will tell you, I charge a lot of money for a DWI, probably twice as much as anybody else in town, but people hire me all the time. And that's a combination of a lot of things, but it is, you know, if you do the, like for instance, Texas has a Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association. They put on seminars all over the state, going to those seminars and networking. And that's where you learn about stuff like this. That's where I learned about the forensic lawyer program. And when I realized, well, there's one person in this room of 300 who's gone through this training, I'm going to go do it. And I educated myself about it and I did it. And it took me a while because my practice was getting underway and, you know, and I have a busy practice, but I made the time to do it. So looking for those opportunities and getting out there in those seminars, joining like TCDLA, 
offering yourself up for leadership, you're going to be dealing with the best lawyers in the state, the most active lawyers in the state. Those are the people you need to network with. And they're the people probably who are going to make you a better lawyer. You know, they always say surround yourself with people who are better than you. What you do when you do that is you see what you can do. A lot of people think, well, I just go to court and I negotiate with the prosecutor and then I get the best deal and I plead the case out. You go talk to some of these people who are cutting edge lawyers, who are changing the law. You're associating with them and you see, oh, oh, this is what criminal defense practice can look like. I did not know. Now I know. Now I have a goal. And you keep developing that way. It takes time. Nobody, nobody comes out of law school and is immediately uh, uh, having the kind of practice that I have or some of these other lawyers have that we've been talking about. But if you, you know, dedicate yourself to building your practice, networking, marketing properly, community involvement, and always looking for ways to advance your knowledge as a lawyer to help your clients, there's just no way you could avoid being successful. That's one of the things I tell people right now. I mean, there are two different schools of thought about practicing criminal defense work. One is I'm just going to keep the overhead really, really low, which I think, you know, that's fine. You know, and I'm just going to have a little office at one person. I'm going to take appointments or I'm going to, you know, market myself. And, and then I just take all that money home. And then there's kind of the model that, that I've had, which is I want to be considered one of the best lawyers in Texas. I want people to want to come to, to see me. You know, I'm proud to say that in this community, if there's a major crime or any kind of a thing, people are, my name's always going to come up. You got to go see Shane Phelps. Now, they may not hire me, although I will say that most people who've come to see me hire me, uh, even though I'm charging more money. But that's also, and this is something that's really important, I take the time to talk to people. I don't charge people for consultations. Uh, you know, we advertise for a free consultation, and that's, that's fine. But I go way beyond that. I take phone calls at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And if, you know, if you've got a parent at 3 o'clock in the morning who's panicked because their kid's in jail, and they think their lives are over, and you're the first one to take the time to talk them through it and talk them down off the ledge and let them know, given your circumstances, your son's probably going to be okay. Let's just get him out of jail. And then if you want, call my office, set up an appointment. They always call because they know you're taking the time. You're concerned about him. So it's not uncommon for me. Uh, I did it this morning. I spent an hour on the phone with a panicked mother answering every question she has. I am not that lawyer that just says, I charge 10000 for a DWI. Let us know if you want to hire us and hang up the phone. Those lawyers are not going to get anywhere, but the ones who take the time and show the concern and the compassion and that it's not about the money, although I charge a lot and I, I get a lot of sticker shock and that's fine. I mean, I, I tell people it's not going to hurt my feelings if you want to hire my other lawyer. And that's another secret. You know, I, I get a lot of people who cannot afford me and I hate to turn people away. So I work with clients on payment plans and things like that. It drives my wife crazy, um, but I just can't say no. I mean, I, I, and, and it's paid off for me. But I can also say, but I also have another lawyer in my office or another lawyer in my office. I hire exception lawyers. They work for me. So I'm always involved in their cases. And here's how much they'll charge. And they hire them instead. And that money doesn't leave my firm. So another kind of, I don't think it's a secret that that's how it's done, but it certainly has worked out well for me. It sounds like it. That's that's a really helpful tip, I think. Maybe not everyone understands because I, I always hear from clients of mine that they want to grow their firm, but they're not quite sure what the next move is. And that's a good chance to monetize some leads that maybe you're charging more for, but you can hire an associate who charges a lower fee and that money is still staying within the law firm, you know, yes. but you're still able to charge more because you have earned that, you know, through your experience and through the cases you've handled, but you can still monetize those leads. That's you can. And, and 
you know, people feel comfortable if they know that they're hiring a lawyer who is still in my law firm and that has access to me and that I'm going to be, you know, I, I, I tell them I'm, I'm ultimately responsible for the legal work that comes out of my firm. And so people feel pretty good about that. So if they can't afford me, they hire them. And that money stays in the firm. It's not, you know, walking out the door. And that has worked out very well for me over the years. What challenges have you faced this year in particular with the pandemic? You know, it's been interesting we, we, and a little scary. I've been very fortunate. We've not shut the office down at all. We were, you know, designated as an essential business, uh, essential service. The courts kind of shut down for a long time, but that gave me a lot of time to kind of catch up. At least that's what I told myself. Um, <laughs> and I told my staff, of course, you know, at least when the whole thing started, you know, if, if you feel more comfortable working from home, please do. I mean, I'd really like to take care of my staff. You know, it's kind of interesting. They came back before I asked them to. And so we have been up and running for months and we never shut down. I came into the office every day. Now there were, there was about a month where I was the only one in the office, but I was answering phone calls and, and working on cases and, and frankly making money. It slowed down a little bit, but nothing like I was really worried about some of my colleagues, but making ourselves available during the whole pandemic, putting stuff on my website, on my Facebook page. We've implemented, you know, I've got a little sanitizer thing, but put my logo on it. So, you know, so, and, in, you know, when people come in, my assistant shoots them with a the thermometer and makes sure everything's okay. I'm very, you know, I'm sensitive to keeping my staff safe and I don't want to bring anything home to my family. So we've been very careful about it, but, you know, I, I've been extraordinarily fortunate that things have, you know, it slowed down maybe a little, but not dangerously so by any stretch and only for a couple of months. You know, now that they've got students back at A&M and Blinn, the college here in town, the junior college, I'm busier than I, I'm just busier than I can be. So, <laughs> so it had an interesting effect at the courthouse because, you know, judges here are trying to try cases. It's not really working very well. And, but things are going to start, they're, you know, kind of ratcheting up pretty quickly now. But we survived the pandemic by being available by phone. You know, in these days, one of the advents, I wish I had invested money in Zoom before all this happened. Because one of the advents of this is you can meet people by, I do not like, you know, I talk to people on the phone a lot, but I also like to meet people in person and, and Zoom presents the opportunity for, for people to, to do consultations and talk to people face to face. And that can be very helpful. So, yeah, I think Zoom is one of those things that's going to stick around when this is over, oh, you know, absolutely. it kind of pushed us to do it, but I think it's a great use of technology and I, you know, we use it all the time here. And I hear a lot of attorneys using it too and really liking it with their clients. I like it a great deal. I'm a little concerned about judges getting too used to it and deciding that they want to try and do jury trials and things like that by Zoom. I've been fighting yeah. that like crazy and, and I don't think that'll ever happen. But, but they've been, I've had a number of hearings for months, contested hearings and things like that on Zoom. I kind of like it. As soon as I'm done, I can say, may I be excused and click the button and I can go get a Diet Coke or something. Makes it easy on yep. you. Huh? Or just step out the door into my office. So. Mm -hmm. so Shane, tell me about this book that you published. It is called, and I'll show you a copy of it. Here it is. It is Shane's, uh, How to Stay Out of Jail, Shane's Top 10 Rules for Avoiding Trouble at A&M, Blinn and Beyond, second edition. So I represent so many college kids. And I was a bit, I think I mentioned the feral kid. I made a bunch of mistakes when I was young and worried you know, that they would affect my future. You know, it seems a little counterintuitive to write a book as a defense attorney on how not to get arrested, but it has really paid off. And I'll tell you how it originated. I got an email from a father 
whose son I had helped. And it got a really good result for him. And he was very, very happy about that. But he had another son and maybe another one in high school that was headed for Texas A&M. And so he wrote me an email just saying, do you have any tips for my kid to stay out of trouble? And honestly, I just, I'm a pretty good writer. It comes pretty, I would say easily. It's, uh, but I'm pretty good at just sitting down and writing what I think. And so I wrote him an email, long email. And I just put numbered it, number one through 10. And thought about it afterwards and thought, you know what? That'd make a pretty good blog post. And I have a, a blog, I haven't, uh, it's called the Atticus Files, interestingly. And so I turned it into a blog post and the blog post went viral. So I put it on my Facebook page and it got into a bunch of these uh, Facebook groups of parents of a students and it went nuts. And so before long, I was getting phone calls about it. And so I wrote the book and, you know, I paid a guy to, to kind of format it for me. And I think I printed 500 copies or something and went, got out of those pretty quickly. But because it went so viral, I got so many phone calls from parents. One of the things that I offered in the book at the end of the book was, you know, if you just want me to sit down with your kid as they start A&M, make sure they understand how to stay out of trouble. I'm happy to do that. And, and I'll do it for free. And I did that several times. And, and interestingly enough, those have turned into a number of referrals. Fortunately, not for the kids I sat down with, which is nice. But, you know, their mom had another friend who's, you know, whose kid got in trouble. And so, you know, I just recently published a second edition and we put it on my website. Parents love this. They make their kids read it. And it gives me a chance. I mean, if you go through the book, it gives me a chance to, to talk about my background and, and that sort of thing. I've actually turned it into a little bit of a, a PowerPoint presentation. And I've given that presentation to a number of young groups on AM campus and high school students and things like that. And of course, it's got, you know, my, my logo and my phone number and all and stuff on the back. I get phone calls from parents saying, my son violated number four and we need your help. So it's become a really good marketing tool. But just the idea that, you know, I, I took the time and I've actually published a book. It's not really a, a book. It's more of a booklet. But, you know, somebody comes in and sits down with me, particularly parents, and I can hand that to them. I know they're going to read this later on. And, and it's good. It's really good advice. I tell parents, if your kids follow these rules, they are not going to get arrested, or at least it's going to reduce the chances. And parents have really taken to it. So I make sure everybody who comes in the office gets one. And it, uh, it kind of, people talk about it. And, you know, I wrote a book, not a big book, but I wrote a book. I'm going to do one on DWIs as well. I get a lot of questions over and over and over about DWIs in Texas. And what does this mean? And what about license suspensions? And how do they test blood and stuff like that? So I'm going to write one on, on that. And then I'll just take it down to my marketing guy here. I've got a, an ad guy that I, I used to use. And he does still like Atticus Finch Day and stuff like that marketing. And I'll just have him format it. And, and then we'll send it out and get it published. And, you know, it, it probably cost me thousand, maybe $1,500 to, to get 750 of these, but it's, it's like a, you know, a huge business card, but it's also a sincere effort to help people and parents. And again, it seems counterintuitive that I would do it, but it has not had that effect at all. It has again, set me apart from other lawyers in town. And I have an enormous percentage of my caseload are young college students at Blinden A&M. So that's why I, I wrote the book. I think this is a great idea. I mean, I, it, all you have to do is put your mind to, I'm going to do it, sit down and do it, just get something on paper. And then, you know, if it takes you six months to a year to get something, you'll never regret it and invest the time and the money to get something published. And you've got something to hand prospective clients and 
publish it on a blog and it'll go viral, boost it, and your name's out there. People love this book. Parents just love it. And parents are the ones with the credit cards. This is true. We all know that. Well, what is the difference between the first edition and the second edition of the book? You know, interestingly, the first edition, I added a bunch of information that, that I get. You know, I, there's a page here about Shane Phelps and all of my little badges and stuff here. It's got some, uh, at the end of the 10 pages, I talk specifically about uh, some of the offenses I see most commonly. And I've got information about, you know, the classification of offenses in Texas. At, in Texas. And then I've got a page or two on, uh, I don't know if you can see that, but know your rights. So many people get themselves in trouble because they don't know that they have constitutional rights that they can exercise. You know, no officer, you may not search my car. You just stop me for speeding. No, I, I really need to talk to a lawyer before I talk to the detective about this encounter I had with this girl at a party last night. And people don't know that. They don't. And this, this is an attempt to kind of educate people about exercising your rights, because if you don't, rights are like muscles. If you don't exercise them, they atrophy and they go away. So, so that's the difference. I, I added, I, you know, I, I edited it a little bit more. I added a little bit more and then added the, uh, the information about knowing your rights and that sort of thing. It kind of, you know, it kind of, when you're the one explaining the law to people so that they can understand it, they kind of look at you as an authority and particularly lay people. And there's nobody else in town has done something like this. I'm the only lawyer in this area who's done anything like this. Again, it sets you apart. Absolutely. And it's another underutilized tool that people just don't think about. I don't think they do. I mean, I don't think people, and it's not that hard. I mean, I, where this came from and and where eventually, you know, this little DWI book I'm going to write comes from is I get the same questions over and over and over. In fact, I've, I've actually done a fairly long kind of an orientation pamphlet for my law firm that we give everybody who hires us that tries to proactively answer all of the questions that, that I get over and over and over again. And I always tell folks, you're always welcome to call me and I'll answer whatever questions. But once you read through this and, and I write well, and it's accurate information. So it you can't come away from reading it without some positive impression of me as a lawyer, which is helpful. But all you've got to do is just think about what are the things that I get asked a lot and sit down and just get it on paper. And, you know, and if it takes six months to put it into a form where you can actually print it and hand it out to people when they come talk to you, people need to have something in their hand when they leave your office because they're usually going around to three or four other lawyers' offices. And if they're walking away from your office with a kind of an authoritative book that you've written, that's going to set you apart from the other people. And I'm kind of proud to say that when people shop around, they almost always end up hiring me. There's a lot of reasons why, which we've covered today on this amazing session with you, Shane. Well, I hope it's been what you hope to get out of it. And more, more than that, even. Well, and I also, I take the collegiality of the bar very, very, uh, it's just important to me. And so if anybody's watching who has any questions about anything that I've said, just pick up the phone and call me. I'm happy to talk to folks about that. I mean, there's nothing secret about what I'm doing. And I don't, you know, I like to see my colleagues successful. I'm not that lawyer who's going to say, oh, I'm not going to tell anybody about all this stuff because, you know, I want to be the only one doing it. Uh, there's room enough for lots of good lawyers out there to, to make a difference in their communities and, and make a difference in law and make a difference in the lives of their clients and frankly, make a lot of money. So, Where can people go to find you? They can go to my website, which is shanephelpslaw.com or they can just call me. My office number is 979-775-4100. My cell phone, which I put on my business card, a lot of lawyers don't do that. 
I tell people, call me anytime and it makes a difference. So my cell phone number is 979-220-5450. And I don't mind taking phone calls and helping people. You can also email me, Shane at shanephelpslaw.com. And you're also on social media, correct? Under your law Yeah, I have a Facebook page. I'm on Instagram, although my daughter's much better at it than I. Matter of fact, she set up my Instagram account. But yeah, uh, Facebook, I I find to be a a fairly important uh, component of it, of that marketing. And then I've got an Instagram account. I don't do much on Twitter. I should. I mean, there are lawyers that really do quite a bit of advertising on, on, I could be better at that. Frankly, I could be better at the social media stuff, but you know, I get so busy and and trying to sit down and, and I used to tell myself, spend an hour a day on marketing, writing a blog, posting something on Facebook, things like that. Spend an hour a day, a day dedicated to your business, to marketing, to bringing in more, you know, clients unfortunately you will likely get to a point where you don't have time to do that, but that's where you want to be. Absolutely. Well, one of the things you just mentioned, Shane, is how with the marketing side of things, you need to dedicate, you know, an hour or so a day to that. How has it been helpful to you to have a marketing company to step in and take the reins there so that you don't really have to focus as much on those things? You know, when I, when I tried to do the hour a day thing in the earlier kind of stages of my private practice, you know, there was some time to do it, but as the practice grew, that became more and more difficult. And honestly, um, one of the things I did was I went out to a conference. I actually was using a, a, a marketing guy locally and I actually paid to take him with me to, uh, I think it was, I don't know what they call it, lawyernomics or something like that, a three-day conference in Las Vegas about social media and marketing and particularly with respect to the legal field. And, you know, and that's frankly, that's where I met you guys. It is really complicated stuff. I don't know how to do search engine optimization. And if you don't have search engine optimization on your website, your website is worthless to you. You know, your family's going to like it and everything. But if it's not getting out there, if it's not resonating with local, you know, search platforms and things like that, you're never going to get anywhere. So having somebody who can take over that stuff, who knows that stuff is vital if you want to grow your firm. And right now, the way that people find lawyers and lawyers should not fool themselves about this. I mean, I, I pride myself in the fact that I have a lot of folks who, who, who know me and will Google my name and that's how they find me or a friend tells them or a, I get a lot of referrals, frankly, from police officers and judges, which I'm very proud of. But if you're not out there on the internet marketing yourself, you are losing business. It is the way that people find lawyers. It's just as simple as that. Most of them are doing it on their mobile phones or on their iPads, some of them on their, on their laptops. But I would say 80 to 90% of the people who are looking for lawyers, that's how they do it. So I don't have anywhere near the time to both practice law and think about things like you know analytics and search engine optimization and Google ads and all that stuff. I don't even understand that stuff. But my marketing company does. And, and I've got a team that that keeps me posted. I get updates, monthly analytics, uh, suggestions, which is really important. Places where my advertising money and my marketing money is best spent. I can't do all that stuff. And I certainly can't do all that stuff while I'm practicing law. It's, they're almost mutually exclusive. You know, you can do some of that stuff and grow your practice, but at some point you can't do the law practice that you've generated and keep doing that stuff. So to be honest, I, I kind of let go of that a while ago. I mean, I, I concentrate most of my efforts on local marketing, the Facebook stuff, 
the sponsorships of local charities and things like that, um, my KBTX legal analyst uh, appearances and things like that. But when it comes to getting out and marketing where I know people are looking, if I didn't have our marketing company, I don't know where I'd be. It's just something you can't handle on your own. And if you can, then you're not spending enough time practicing law. Yeah, there just aren't enough hours in the day to do everything. There's too many things, right? There are too many things. And it's just one of those things that I know. And I did a ton of research about that because I did a lot of that stuff myself when I first started the, you know, the AVA website, the Fine Law website, those things. I, I looked at a lot of these, you know, I get, you, get, you get barraged all day long with all of these people saying, we'll send you leads. And how about this? I get 15 to 20 emails a week saying, you know, oh, I looked at your website. I think you could be doing better. Would you please give me a call? You need to be very careful about who you hire to do your marketing. You need to use somebody reputable and people who know what they're doing because you can easily throw money away. And I was very fortunate that, that very quickly I, I learned that lesson and it has paid off just in, in enormous returns. Well, Shane, it's been wonderful talking with you today. You've given so much valuable information and I really do appreciate you taking the time to do that today. Well, thanks for taking the time to, to ask me all those questions and Hopefully some of what we've discussed today will help other lawyers, you know, be more successful. I think it absolutely will. Well, if you have found today's episode helpful, which I'm sure you will, please share it with a friend. It helps us out tremendously and also helps get the word out to other people who can use this information. You can also check out our show notes over on our website, scorpion.co, that's .co, no N. We thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.